From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the midterms that upended a lot of predictions. Also looking ahead to Monday's meeting between President Biden and China's President Xi. Think there's a lot to talk about? Then Tracy D. Hall of the American Library Association, who says, of course, some books can be upsetting. That's the role of reading, to move you, to shake you up, and to make you someone new. And James Gray, director, and Jeremy Strong, one of the stars of a new film about a boy and his friends seen in different lights in their schools and neighborhoods. In the new film, Armageddon Time. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, November 12, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Control of the Senate remains undecided, but Democrats are now one seat shy of retaining the majority after Arizona Senator Mark Kelly defeated Republican Blake Masters. Control now hinging on Georgia and Nevada, where the contest between Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and Republican Adam Laxalt is tightening. Nevada's next governor will be Joe Lombardo, Clark County's Republican sheriff. He beat Democratic incumbent Steve Sisolak. Lucia Starbuck with member station KUNR in Reno reports. Lombardo received Donald Trump's endorsement before the primary in June. He supports school choice vouchers, which would allow parents to use state money for private school education, and wants to diversify Nevada's tourism-reliant economy with manufacturing jobs. He promised not to raise taxes. Lombardo has been criticized for shifting stances on access to abortions, previously saying he supports a 13-week ban, but later saying that decision is up to Nevada voters. The procedure is protected under state law. Democratic Sisolak conceded shortly before AP called the race, saying he's proud of the tough decisions he made during the COVID-19 pandemic, even if they had political ramifications. For NPR News, I'm Lucia Starbuck in Reno. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says President Biden will bring up North Korea when he meets with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Bali on Monday on the sidelines of the G20 summit. He says Biden is planning to warn Xi of the threat North Korea presents to regional stability. If North Korea keeps going down this road, it will simply mean further enhanced American military and security presence in the region. Uh, And so the PRC has an interest in playing a constructive role in restraining North Korea's worst tendencies. Whether they choose to do so or not is, of course, up to them. Sullivan spoke to reporters on Air Force One ahead of President Biden's arrival today in Cambodia. Ukraine says Russian forces are taking up defensive positions on the eastern bank of the Dnipro River after retreating from the city of Kherson. NPR's Greg Myrie reports that Russians destroyed the city's energy system before pulling out. Ukraine's military says the 30,000 Russians who retreated are now taking up positions on the opposite side of the river, suggesting the two armies will still be close enough to exchange artillery. The Russians completed their withdrawal from Kherson on Friday without putting up a fight, but not without leaving extensive damage in their wake. According to Ukrainian officials, the Russians knocked out the city's power grid, leaving Kherson without electricity. Officials estimate it could take a month to restore power. The Russians also brought down the city's television tower and blew up several spans of the main bridge crossing the river. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Charlie Baker has vetoed the legislature's allocation of $1 million for a program to educate people about so-called pregnancy crisis centers. Critics say the controversial centers often are misleading and attempt to dissuade women from seeking abortions. The governor's veto came as he signed a $3.7 billion supplemental spending plan. Now that the days are getting shorter, experts say the risk increases for people susceptible to seasonal affective disorder. The condition, known as SAD, is a type of depression related to changes in the season. Dr. David Mishulan of Mass General Hospital says it occurs more frequently in the fall and winter months, but he says there are effective treatments, including light therapy with fluorescent lamps. Usually people can expose themselves to that lamp for usually a half an hour twice a day. And uh, that can actually help to um, overcome the, uh, the seasonal depression. Dr. Michelin says healthy eating also can help manage seasonal depression. A soldier from Maine killed in World War II will be laid to rest today. Army Air Force Sergeant Zellwood Gravelin of New Vineyard, Maine, was killed at the age of 21 when his bomber was shot down over Romania in 1943. He'll be buried near his hometown. Boston's open-air holiday market, known as the Snowport, has returned to the seaport. More than 120 small businesses are participating in this year's market. That's twice as many as last year. The market will remain open through the end of the year. It is 71 degrees in Boston, some showers around mainly this morning. A breezy Saturday with a cloudy start becoming mostly sunny and highs today reaching the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And PBS, with Taken Hostage. American Experience tells the story of the Iran hostage crisis through eyewitness accounts. A two-night event beginning Monday at 9, 8 central on PBS. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. Democrat Mark Kelly has won the Arizona Senate race, according to the AP, and that makes it one more seat likely. Democrats will retain control of the Senate, but there's still key races to be decided. So four days after Election Day, we just don't know which party will have control in Congress come January. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. A week that should make us all, all of us in the news business humble about predictions. So let me not delay in asking, so what's your prediction, Ron? Uh, Democrats Democrats got the Senate, but Republicans control the House by just a whisker? So it's 49-49 right now for the Senate with Arizona decided, Nevada, Georgia to go. They are still counting in Nevada, but incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto has been whittling away on the lead of Republican Adam Laxalt a little each day. Uh, last night, the margin was just over 100, excuse me, 100 votes mm-hmm. with tens of thousands of ballots left to count. So Democrats are cautiously optimistic there. Uh, winning either Nevada or the Georgia runoff would give Democrats a 50-50 tie again, which would make them the majority with the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris. In the House, 
it looks like the Republicans will be ahead by just a whisker, as you say, gaining a net of fewer than 10 seats, which is 15 or 20 fewer than they expected to gain, and that most everyone, including me, expected them to gain. What happened to the red wave? It happened, Scott, but pretty much only in Florida. In that one state, Republicans truly dominated. Governor Ron DeSantis won a new term by 20 percentage points. Uh, But elsewhere in the country, uh, not so much. Now, as we've said, over the last 75 years, the average gain in the House for the party opposing the president has been about two dozen. And it's been more than 40 seats when the president was under 50 percent approval, as Biden is now. The GOP was looking for that kind of numbers, and they are nowhere near that. So the big question is why. Midterms are always a chance to push back against the current president, and that was true this year. But we also saw a lot of pushback against the former president, who made himself a focal point this year and promoted a lot of candidates in marquee races who wound up losing. What about inflation? Polls showed prices to be the issue. And Republicans, of course, blame the administration. A lot of us thought the election would be primarily about inflation, and inflation clearly mattered. But people signing up to vote for the first time around the country this year seem to have been motivated as much by abortion rights and climate change. Also, more young people turned out than has been typical in midterms, and that also made a big difference. Candidates endorsed by Donald Trump lost a number of key races. Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, uh, now Arizona. Is the Trump brand now one to avoid? There have been Republicans who wanted to avoid that brand for a long time, and they just got their arguments reinforced by this election. Trump got involved this year, intimately involved, picking winners in the primaries, always looking for candidates who had minimal government experience, if any, but had media presence or visual appeal, candidates in his own image, and also people who were willing to embrace his baseless claims about the 2020 election. Uh, He found those people in state after state, but they were not always the strongest potential nominees. That's part of his current dilemma, but only part. Republicans are also seeing the emergence of a legitimate threat to Trump as the next nominee in 2024. That's Ron DeSantis, I just mentioned. And so we're going to wait and see if former President Trump really does announce his new campaign for president next week, as has been expected. Whatever the final results, uh, we seem to return once more to a country that's locked up 50-50. Just more gridlock ahead for the next two years? In a word, yes. There will likely be no legislation that is bipartisan enough or nonpartisan enough to become law. Biden will have his veto pen. Democrats will have some input on the bills that go to his desk. Uh, But those facts don't change the reality of Congress. You either have the votes or you don't. And right now, that means the votes of both parties, and they just aren't getting together. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. President Biden heads to Indonesia Monday. He'll meet with China's Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit, the world's largest economies. U.S. President has not met Xi face-to-face in three years. NPR's John Ruitz joins us from Shanghai. John, thanks very much for being with us. Happy to be here. So I gather they've met, but uh, Joe Biden wasn't president. 
Correct. Yeah. And since he's been president, they've had several phone calls and video conferences. Uh, but, you know, bilateral relations remain very tense. There is deep mistrust going in both directions. There are disputes over trade, over technology, over their general worldview that they're not really talking much about. Expectations going into this meeting are quite modest, but the hope is that face-to-face -face interaction will be more useful than phone calls. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, talked to journalists on board Air Force One yesterday on the way to Asia, and this is what he had to say. It's not about deliverables or trying to produce some joint statement. It's about the leaders coming to a better understanding and then tasking their teams uh, to do intensive work to come back uh, for further engagements between the leaders. So further engagement, you know, the Chinese leadership has been very unhappy with the Biden administration's general approach, which is focused on competing with China and countering what the Biden administration sees as threats from China. So how much Xi Jinping is willing to sign on to further engagement is a big question mark. John, of course, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, was in Taiwan in August, and Xi Jinping had this to say, quote, those who play with fire will perish by it. Does that still seem to be the, the sentiment? Well, yeah, Taiwan is the corest of core issues for China, really. The ruling Communist Party just added a mention of it to the party charter at a Congress last month. Uh, that highlights its importance to Xi Jinping. Biden said this week he wants to use this meeting to clarify the quote-unquote red lines from both sides on Taiwan and that he won't make fundamental concessions. The administration's been pretty consistent in saying U.S. does not support Taiwan independence, but Biden has said on several occasions that the United States would get involved and help Taiwan militarily in a conflict with China, which is pretty explicit. So in Beijing, there's a lot of skepticism about this. You know, Beijing believes Taiwan is part of China, wants it back, and it sees the U.S. as standing in the way. So, yeah, Xi Jinping may have some strong words. What about the war in Ukraine, too, and China's relationship with Russia? Uh, Ukraine will definitely come up. China is a friend of Russia's. It's been sympathetic to Moscow's rationale for invading Ukraine in the first place. But Beijing isn't in favor of the war. It's called for restraint from all sides. You know, the U.S. has tried in the past to get China to use its leverage, its friendship with Russia to end the war. There does seem to be a growing effort to get Russia and Ukraine to the negotiating table. And I talked with a Chinese scholar about this. He declined to be identified, but he said he thinks really there could well be a role for China in this that overlaps with U.S. interests. You know, separately, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said Biden also hopes that China can play sort of a similar role when it comes to North Korea, which has tested dozens of missiles in recent weeks. And John, there in Shanghai, what's the view from China of this meeting? You know, people aren't too optimistic. In China, the tension in the relationship between Beijing and Washington is really blamed on the United States. I had a conversation with a professor named Zhu Feng. He's with Nanjing University. And he said he thinks that Xi Jinping is going to push Biden to try to bring the relationship back to a more balanced state. But with the Republican Party potentially taking control of the House of Representatives, maybe even the Senate, he thinks Biden's maneuverability on China is really going to shrink. There's a great uh, deal of Taiwan sympathy among the Republican hawks. That's what I'm uh, really feel very, very afraid of. He's afraid of the Taiwan sympathy because friction over Taiwan could lead to a conflict. And here's John Ruich in Shanghai. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Several candidates who won their races in these 2022 midterm elections will not be able to serve for a sound but unfortunate reason. They are dead. We should quickly explain there is no scandal between campaigns for local, state, and federal offices, judges, prosecutors, county boards, city councils, coroners, and more. There are thousands of candidates on ballots across the country. 
I hope it doesn't sound callous to note that the odds are not all of them will make it to Election Day. Some may die after ballots are printed or even after voting has begun. State Representative Tony DeLuca of Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, the longest-serving member in the state's House of Representatives, won more than 85 percent of the vote in his district. But Mr. DeLuca died in early October from lymphoma at the age of 85. A special election to fill his seat will be held in a few weeks. While we're incredibly saddened by the loss of Representative Tony DeLuca, the Pennsylvania House Democratic Campaign Committee said in a tweet this week, we are proud to see the voters continue to show their confidence in him and his commitment to democratic values by re-electing him posthumously. Tennessee State Representative Barbara Cooper was re-elected to represent House District 86, a seat she's held since 1996. But Representative Cooper died last month at the age of 93. A special election will also be held for that seat. But there is controversy in Chula Vista, California. Simone Silva currently has a 149-vote lead over Dan Smith in the contest for city attorney. Dan Smith contends the local Democratic Party was disingenuous to continue to send out campaign literature for Mr. Silva, who died of cancer in September at the age of 56. It was too late to legally remove his name from the ballot. I think they did a disservice to members of their party by not informing them, Mr. Smith told ABC 10 News in San Diego. My frustration is nothing compared to their frustration once they found out today that Mr. Silva has passed away and they voted for him. A special election will be held in Chula Vista, which officials estimate will cost between a million and two million dollars. Candidates make many promises, sincere and otherwise, in hopes of being elected. But the passing of people who look forward to serving might remind us that some forces in life are just beyond the power of any promises we make. You're listening to NPR News. You are part of the WBUR community, and that's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It is Wednesday, November 16th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. For details, go to WBUR.org slash open meetings. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo, covering Metro Boston windows for over 30 years with shades, blinds, draperies, and more. Inuendo's design team in Natick and Inuendo.com. H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Control of the Senate remains undecided, but Democrats are closer to retaining their majority. Arizona's Mark Kelly has held on to his seat against Republican challenger Blake Masters. The race was called last night. Masters was backed by former President Trump, who is seeking to block a subpoena from the House January 6th committee. Trump filed a lawsuit last night in federal court in Florida. The subpoena requires Trump to turn over documents and to sit for a deposition on Monday. And forecasters say the rem- 
remnants of Hurricane Nicole will move into Atlantic Canada this weekend. The storm has brought heavy rain to much of the East Coast after coming ashore in Florida. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Twitter blue, we hardly knew you. Within a week of Twitter rolling out its blue subscription service that allowed users to pay $7.99 for a verified checkmark, the company announced it's putting the program on pause. It was the first big product launch under Elon Musk at Twitter, and it's been a bust. Fraudsters bought subscriptions so they could impersonate people or brands and cause mischief. NPR's Bobby Allen, the real one, joins us now. Bobby, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. This announcement yesterday came after uh, some somebody took LeBron James' name, somebody took former President Bush's names onto their accounts and got them verified. Yeah, that's right. So um, as you mentioned, and as a result, Elon Musk is tapping the brakes on Twitter Blue because complete and utter mayhem was unleashed, basically. It turns out if anyone with eight bucks can go and get a blue check on their Twitter profile, well, the internet will be the internet. (laughs) So yeah, we saw all kinds of phony accounts. We saw Eli Lilly and Coca-Cola impersonated. We saw fake accounts of President, former President Trump, Rudy Giuliani, LeBron James sent messages out. Most troubling to people like disinformation researchers though, were fake accounts that popped up with blue checks purporting to be news organizations. So the situation has clearly gotten very out of hand, Scott, but um, you know, Musk's thinking behind this is, is really twofold here. And it's that he wants Twitter to find ways to make money other than advertising, which is how Twitter makes most of its money. And he thinks blue checks on Twitter is it's kind of an elitist system, at least according to Musk, right? He thinks uh, you know that the power should be given back to the people. That's that's how that's how he puts it, at least. <laughs> well, there the used to be a system to to certify that the people who said they were those people were those people, right? <laughs> exactly. So in the before times, I guess we can say now, government agencies, politicians, celebrities, journalists like you and I, Scott, would receive blue checks on Twitter if the company verified and you know did yeah. some vetting and did due diligence and figured out, yes, this is the Scott Simon who we think it is. So we'll give this person a blue check, right? But Musk said that amounted to a, quote, lords and peasants system. So he ripped up the rule book and decided to start over. Um, as, we're, as we're discussing here, Musk and his team are now reevaluating. But what remains uh, his strong belief is that, you know, cracking down on bots and scammers on Twitter, you know, really should be the company's number one priority. And 
He originally thought selling blue checks might be a good solution. Ironically, it has had the opposite effect, and it's made the problem he diagnosed um, much worse. And and that's that's because advertisers and other supporters uh, got upset by how the landscape would change if you had a lot of people doing impersonations. Yeah, in part. I mean. <laughs> Right now, you just really can't be confident about anything that you see on, on Twitter. And as you mentioned, advertisers have gotten, um, you know, have been very aghast, honestly, looking at the situation and saying, you know, we believe in something called brand safety and we don't want to place yeah. ads next to a bunch of tweets that are spreading disinformation or are impersonating former presidents. That just doesn't sound something that's, wor that's worth placing an ad next to. It would seem as if the richest man in the world is off to a rocky start uh, <laughs> as, as head of this platform. What's, what's the outlook? In short, it's pretty bleak, Scott. I mean, um, look, you have the Internet's town square, which is being run right now by an erratic billionaire who likes making decisions rashly. Um, half of the staff has been laid off. We've already seen a slew of top executives who work on things like trust and safety resign in protests. As you mentioned, big advertisers are bolting. And under the hood, Twitter has never been a very good business, right? It's a long struggle to make a profit. And now under Musk, it's got lots of new debt weighing it down. If it's <laughs> any indication of what could be in store for the company, Musk told employees recently that he's not ruling bankruptcy out. So um, that's what Twitter mm -hmm. is looking at right now. And here's Bobby Allen. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. One of the major winners of the election season wasn't a candidate per se, but a political tool, redistricting. It's the practice of redrawing congressional maps, sometimes in a way that favors one party over another. David Wasserman is uh, the authority on redistricting for the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. Mr. Wasserman, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Can you determine how big a factor redistricting was in these midterms? Redistricting was destiny. And you know, Republicans were able to manipulate the lines in Texas and Georgia and Tennessee and Ohio and especially Florida in their favor. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis passed a map that uh, will likely give Republicans, it has given Republicans mm -hmm. an additional four seats in that state, converting the delegation from 16-11 in Republicans' favor to 20-8. to and that alone right there is likely to be the size of the Republican majority if Republicans are able to hold on and win at least 218 seats. Now, that's half the equation. The other factor is that even though Democrats were able to gerrymander a, a small number of states of their own, including New Mexico and Illinois and Nevada and Oregon, they weren't able to counter Republicans by gerrymandering the very large blue states that they typically dominate California and New Jersey and Washington and Colorado and Virginia. They passed anti-gerrymandering reform in the last several decades. And as a result, commissions or courts ended up drawing maps in those states. Democrats tried to gerrymander New York and it got struck down by a state judge. Collectively, those rulings and, and those reforms probably cost Democrats at least 15 seats that they would have been able to essentially grab into their column. What what stands in the way of redistricting being a nonpartisan, independent, objective, citizen-like venture? 
Well, the lack of a national standard. And when we have state by state rules that vary a lot, essentially we, we end up with this crazy quilt of districts that are drawn according to different rules and criteria in ways that in some cases are quite fair and citizen driven. Uh, you know, for example, by commissions in Colorado and Michigan and California, but oftentimes they're, they're extremely warped in partisan ways, uh, as in Illinois, where Democrats mm -hmm. drew a map that will give them 14 out of 17 seats in the next Congress, even though they won uh, only about 56% of votes cast for House in that state. Or uh, in in Texas, where Republicans are poised uh, to win 25 out of 38 districts, uh, so look, we we have districts that defy uh, contiguity seemingly when you look at them on a map, mm -hmm. and it's because we don't have an objective standard that the Supreme Court or Congress has adopted. The court should play a role, shouldn't they? Well, the courts have played a big role at the state level, and because the Supreme Court essentially said, this is a, a political question that we can't get involved in. And in mm -hmm. fact, you can't bring a partisan gerrymandering claim in federal court. It fell to a lot of state courts to adjudicate. And so North Carolina uh, and Pennsylvania uh, had Democratic majority state Supreme Courts that struck down Republican attempts at gerrymandering and they imposed their own plans. But of course, in this election, Republicans took back majorities on the Ohio and North Carolina Supreme Courts. It's possible that Republicans could try to pad whatever small majority they win by re-gerrymandering North mm -hmm. Carolina and grabbing three more seats. And the partisan skew of that court could green light them to do so. Uh, 20 seconds left. Redistricting often <clears throat> just an incumbent retention program? not just an incumbent retention program, but proactive way of parties to elect new members. In Oregon, which won a new seat, Democrats drew the map to win five out of six districts. It's look, looking like they'll end up with four. David Wasserman, Cook Political Report, thanks so much. Thank you. Some of the leading lights of literature will be honored at the National Book Awards in New York City next week. And for the second year in a row, the Literarian Award for Outstanding Service will be given to a librarian. Tracy D. Hall has championed books and readers at libraries in Seattle, Queens, Hartford, and New Haven. She's now Executive Director of the American Library Association and joins us from Chicago. Tracy Hall, thanks so much for being with us. Scott, thanks for having me. Is it tough to be a librarian now? Oh, my goodness. It's always the best possible time to be a librarian. But today we find ourselves facing a level of book censorship like never before. And we are finding that once again, doing the work of knowledge dissemination is especially tough at this time. What might you say to family members who... We'll say quite sincerely, look, I, you know, I just don't want my child upset or shaken up or even hurt by something they read. Yeah, well, that's what 
books and, and art and good media does. It takes us outside of ourselves. And I think that that's the role of literature. That's the role of reading to move you, to shake you up and to make you someone new. And so I would say to anybody who said to me, I don't want my child shaken up. I would say that we want to create people who can be with other people. And the only way that we do that is by allowing ourselves to come into contact with other thoughts and ways of, of living. And in my upbringing, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And my grandfather was very quiet, very loving, but he wasn't always telling his story. And I remember reading the book Heidi, you know, Heidi in the Alps with her grandfather and her grandfather seemed gruff. And I remember learning a little bit about his sort of tough exterior and then looking at my grandfather and realizing that my grandfather, who was so loving, also had these soft spots. There I was in Watts and here was a young child, I think in the Alps, helping me to understand a man who rarely spoke very much, but helping me to see in his ways his love for me. That's what I want for every child and for every adult. Gather you grew up in, in South Los Angeles. Yes, Watts. Can you tell us about any particular library or librarian? What put you on the path to loving books? My grandmother put me on the path to loving books because my grandmother and grandfather were participants in the Great Migration from Grand Cane, Louisiana, to South Los Angeles. And we took to certain types of institutions as points of pride. One of them was the Watts Towers, but the other one was our Yellow Library, small library branch, uh, which was then located on 103rd Street. Today it's on Compton Avenue. And I remember my grandmother, who rarely went out of the house, would take that slow walk to the library. And I remember one day in particular, when I had checked out almost every book I could carry, she said, um, we didn't have anything like this when I was growing up, you know, access to libraries uh, was a privilege for my grandmother. And today it's like coming full circle to lead this August organization with so many thousands of librarians and libraries connected across the country, and especially to be standing for the right to read at this particular time. Are there libraries today that are not just a source of information and entertainment and reflection, but a kind of, uh, a kind of home for youngsters and families? Yes, palaces for the people. Yeah, that's important to keep that, isn't it? It is. You know, today we have over 160,000 libraries of school libraries, public libraries, academic libraries, the place where anyone, no matter who they are, can come in and feel a sense of ownership. And they deserve to see themselves and their lived experiences reflected on our shelves, to see themselves at or behind the reference desk, to see themselves in the information that they are using to navigate their daily lives. And that's what we work towards. Tracy D. Hall is executive director of the American Library Association and winner of this year's Literarian Award at next week's National Book Awards. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Normally, Ukrainians travel abroad to get organ transplants, but the Russian invasion 
has prompted the country to find ways to perform those operations within its own borders. And that's why, as reporter Daniel Ackerman explains, Ukrainian doctors traveled to Boston for a quick course in lung transplants. Dr. Sergei Melnichuk practices heart and lung surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. But he grew up in Ukraine, and he traveled back there this past April during the chaotic early days of the Russian invasion. He went to teach trauma care at three local hospitals where beds were filling up with wounded people. Melnichuk saw roadsides littered with burnt-out tanks and trees with their canopies blown away by missiles. And that's your country where you grow up, and it's, you can't recognize it. It was, it was hurting my heart. Uh, it was painful. He wanted to do more to help. And at the hospitals he visited, he kept getting the same question. In all three hospitals, they were asking about transplants. And so I was like, why, why, why are you so interested in transplants? You're in times of war. He learned that Ukraine didn't have a full-service organ transplant center. Previously, if a patient needed a new set of lungs, the government would send them abroad. But neighboring countries have made it harder for foreigners to get transplants. Plus, the procedure can cost more than $100,000, and the war has slashed Ukraine's healthcare budget. Oksana Dmitrieva is a member of parliament in Ukraine and a former doctor. She says many doctors in the country are working without pay. Since the war started, the government hasn't been able to send transplant patients abroad. Some with end-stage lung disease are dying. So when Dmitrieva met Melnichuk during his April visit to Ukraine, they hatched a plan. Ukraine would send a team of 13 doctors to Boston. Melnichuk would spend three months training them on lung and heart transplants. Our original plan was that they would just rent Airbnb and they would live in apartments and be close to the hospital. But the Ministry of Health is pretty broke right now. So instead, Boston-area families volunteered to house the doctors. Vitaly Sokolov, a thoracic surgeon from Kyiv, says his host family insists on doing all the cooking. I proposed several times, can I help you in any way? Can I go to a grocery store? No, 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 no. I would say that I have another mother and father in the States. But Sokolov wakes at 5 each morning to call his own family back in war-torn Kyiv to make sure they have electricity and heat. Then he heads into the hospital. There's no transplant today. Instead, the patient on the operating table needs a leaky heart valve repaired. But it's still a chance for Melnichuk to share his surgical techniques. Wearing a blue gown, he leans over the patient, picks up a knife, and cuts into the space between two ribs. Half a dozen technicians surround him, handing off surgical instruments and monitoring the patient for blood clotting. ACT is 300 climbing, orange is on. Melnichuk has conducted this medical orchestra hundreds of times before. But today, the procedure sounds a bit different. As Sokolov and another Ukrainian doctor look on, Melnichuk explains his technique in Ukrainian. Outside the operating room, he says it means a lot to speak his native language at work. Well, this was actually first time in my life to, uh, to speak Ukrainian. It's, uh, um, I'm, I'm actually very, very happy. I'm very grateful that I had this chance to somehow give back something to my country. In December, the 13 visiting doctors will return to Kyiv, hoping to bring a brighter future for Ukraine's transplant patients, even in dark times. For NPR News, I'm Daniel Ackerman in Boston. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Baker has vetoed the legislature's allocation of $1 million for a program to educate people about so-called crisis pregnancy centers. Critics say the anti-abortion facilities use misleading advertising. The governor's veto came as he signed a $3.7 billion supplemental spending plan. A Marine Corps veteran in Massachusetts has been sentenced to a year in prison for stealing nearly $400,000 in Veterans Affairs and Social Security disability benefits. Federal prosecutors say from at least 2012 to 2019, Patrick Quinn illegally collected the funds meant for people who are unable to work. During that time, however, they say Quinn owned and operated a successful insurance company in Arlington. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. The Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Camp Oatka, Sebago Lake, Maine, a boys' camp promoting service, safety, and equality through outdoors, arts, and athletics. Book risk-free at campoatka.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Amber Ruffin, who plays the new purple M&M in the commercials, realizes she could have gotten a better deal. Wait, did you get, like, a lifetime supply of M&Ms? No, why aren't you my agent? I'm Peter Sagal. Bring your own snacks as you listen to this week's show featuring actor Craig Robinson. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Strega, the new novel by Johanna Leakey Holm, begins with a scene that almost slaps you in the face. It's in a bedroom. The bedsheets are stained with milk and blood. There are hairpins, sleeping pills, and undergarments around. Raffaella, the 19-year-old narrator, says, I knew a woman's life could at any point be turned into a crime scene. But the crime scene was not the bed, but the body. The crime had already taken place. The book tells the story of Raffaella, a young woman who eventually goes to work in a resort hotel where no guests seem to visit. Strega is translated from the Swedish by Saskia Vogel, and Johanny Likiholm joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about this uh, resort hotel, which after finishing the book, I am reluctant to call a hotel, <laughs> in which nine teenage women come to work. Uh, yes, the hotel is called The Olympic, and it's located in these fictitious Italian mountains. I would describe it as eerie, and it is run by three older women, by older, <laughs> the narrator Rafa would refer to people over 25. 
these nine girls, they work every day, just taking care of the hotel. They make the beds, they clean the rooms, they make food and so on. But no one ever shows up. Yeah. And close by, there is a community of nuns who also have this kind of, uh, live this kind of life where every day resembles uh, the next. And this repetition, this like almost theater-like reproduction that they play out the same day again and again until one day uh, one of them goes missing. This is Cassie. This and is Cassie, yes. We'll, we'll get to her story. Um, I found myself asking pretty early on in the novel, why would their families want their daughters to work at a place like the Olympic Hotel? I think to understand that there is this chapter in the novel where it is described how the parents have this idea that the girls mm -hmm. um, should be prepared for a life where they will take care of their husband, their children, and be what you would call good women. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, that woman, of course, doesn't exist anymore, or maybe she has, has never existed. I think the hotel is this weird prison where all the doors are open. They could just leave whenever, but they don't. And why don't they just leave? I think that's the yeah. main question of the book. What gets set off when Cassie goes missing, one of the young women? What does it set off in Rafi and others? I actually think that what happens is that they just keep reenacting this weird performance or play that they are in. They are kind of playing a game. Mm -hmm. They don't react in a what you would call a really like loving and normal way. They do not call her parents right away. They don't call the po police. They don't seem to be that distraught. Yeah. In some of the scenes, they are almost excited, I would say, like it's all a film. Well, it, I mean, it's, forgive me, it's diversion. Yeah. You know, it's something different. <laughs> yes. To break up their time. Exactly. Many readers have told me that they see Streg as this feminist saga almost uh, about yeah. female friendship. And in some way, they read it like this kind of utopia. To me, it's more about how these girls are complicit with the violence and the horrors of the world yeah. and how they are actually not rebellious. Yeah, complicit in violence committed against women. is Exactly, yeah. The narrator says women are born into a world in which many crimes will be committed against them. Yes. Yeah. Strega means witch in yes. Italian, right? Yes. And that's, that's not an accident, is it? No, it isn't. To me, Strega is this really emblematic word. Yeah. It is not just the meaning which, it is also how it looks. It is also this funny, I would call it connection with the Italian liquor called Strega, this really yellow yeah. herbal alcoholic drink. But to me, the word Strega holds information about hidden knowledge, hidden practices, mm -hmm. maybe the things uh, women have been doing in secret. And I think that is an aspect of human history. This sounds really bombastic, but 
that I've tried to tap into. That w- women have been special victims of, of... Yes, but also that, I mean, in the word witch, yeah. the word witch is both this accusation and also this really honorable thing to be. Mm-hmm. It is both the aggression and the power, if that makes sense. It, it, yeah. it is both w- what you are called by the witch hunters and what you are uh, as a woman in a community with uh, special practices in regarding nature and all sorts of things. And I think that is the magic of the word strega, that it, it has both these dimensions. You know, I am a cisgendered man who has read the novel and liked it. I'm wondering if there's something specific you would like readers who are not women to absorb. I think the book tries to unveil this hidden secret, which is not a secret to girls and women. I think the quote in the beginning with every woman's life turning into a crime scene, Mm -hmm. that the crime has already taken place. I think that is where the novel just spells it out. That is what the novel is trying to show the reader. And if the reader is a girl or a woman, she might recognize this hidden secret from inside herself or inside themselves. And as a cisgendered man, I think the novel holds this opportunity to hear something uh, that's usually just spoken about when mm. you're not present. Johanna Leakey Holm, her novel, Strega. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Just a year ago, the crypto market was hot, hot. Since then, Bitcoin's value has fallen about 75%, and this week a key company filed for bankruptcy. Forget crypto winter, one analyst describes it as an ice age. Listen to Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha tomorrow for a conversation about what's behind the crypto collapse and why it matters. You can listen live tomorrow morning at this station's website or at npr.org. Armageddon Time is a coming-of-age drama about two boys, Paul and Johnny, one Jewish, one black, who bond over classroom mischief and music and who learn their lives are given different values in the place they're growing up, Queens, New York City, 1980. It was drawn from the director's own life, James Gray, director of Little Odessa, We Own the Night, and Ad Astra joins us now. Mr. Gray, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here. And Paul's father, alongside Anne Hathaway's his mother, is played by Jeremy Strong, an actor, of course, best known from Succession. And he joins us now. Thank you very much for being with us, Mr. Strong. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Mr. Gray, I've got to ask you, Paul, played by Banks Rapetta, a character fashioned after you, doesn't look like he has an especially happy home life. Was that yours? Um, it's pretty close. My parents, when they had the day-to-day struggles to put food on the table, I think parenting was almost secondary, you know, in importance. And children are not born and raised uh, 
just in a vacuum. They need some kind of guidance, some kind of emotional support, and also some ethical and moral support. And it is true, my brother and I, I don't think we quite had that. Yeah. Mr. Strong, how does that figure into what you do as an actor? How do you show all of that? Well, I think the hope is you don't set out to show anything. I think you, what your task is and what you're trying to do is, in a sense, embody this struggle and experience of a given character. I'd read something that James had said in, in an interview about his father would get off the subway in Queens in Flushing and take some time before coming home and that he had imagined that maybe his father was going shopping and, and I think later realized that he was avoiding going home. There's something incredibly pressurized in the circumstances that this husband and wife are living in. I've got to ask you both about this extraordinary scene that is painful for me to recall even now. Paul and Johnny get into trouble for smoking something illegal in the bathroom, and Paul's mother tells his father, played by you, Jeremy Strong, they have to beat our son. What was that like to, to play? That was a difficult day, as you can imagine. And, you know, this is a household where love and violence coexist, and we don't often see that uh, depicted in, in storytelling, but it is, in fact, true. And he is trying... I think, to toughen up his kids and teach them a lesson and prepare them to survive in a hostile and difficult world. Now, I don't think anyone is saying that this is okay, but I think it was important to illustrate that cruelty and brutality alongside with the, the love and warmth and tenderness and humor that also existed in the household. My father just died fairly recently. About two months after we finished shooting, he died of COVID, of all things. And we had a, a good relationship at the end. It was not contentious. And the thing is, I can't fully... Look, I've never once even come close to hitting one of my own children. I think it's madness. But in that context, in the late 1970s, 1980, it was something people did, as crazy as it seems... And I view it now as an act of just stupidity on his part or kind of ineptitude that he didn't really know what to do. He didn't know how to be a parent. He didn't have the tools. You know, when you're a child, what you imagine is this sort of solidity of your parents' world. And then you're a parent and it's only an experience of precarity all the time. You know, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to figure it out and muddle through things the best you can. Mr. Gray, forgive me for bearing in on this question just a little bit more to ask. Is there a point in filming that scene where the pro just takes over, where craft supersedes feeling? A hundred percent. I disliked shooting it, but not for the reasons that some might suspect. I disliked shooting it because I had trouble finding places for the camera in the bathroom, which was small. I had I knew I would have to do some version with, by the way, his mother and his permission. I would have to do some version of terrifying the young boy so that his reaction would make sense. But when I got to the editing room and I saw the footage, that was when I got affected. At the heart of the film, these, these two young men, Paul and Johnny, uh, who's played by Jalen Webb, both boys cut up and misbehave in class. But from the first, the school officials seemed to regard them differently. 
And I wonder, Mr. Gray, is this something that actually you observed, but did the impact of it only hit you later in life and not at the moment? Uh, sort of a combination of both. I, you know, part of it, as a 12-year-old, you, you rationalize things. You don't know the history. You don't understand the kind of broader context. Put it this way, I recognized that not everything was all equal. But at the same time, I rationalized my way out of it. It's important to both of you that people see this film and understand that bigotry still leaps in our hearts today. I have been astonished by the reemergence of things like America First, the idea that I thought we had left Jim Crow uh, in the past and all of a sudden you see voting laws being taken down all over the country. It's, it's been an absolute source of heartbreak and yet totally unsurprising at the same time. I think it speaks to today just as much, if not more, as when it's supposed to be set. These are when the seeds were planted for what we are going through now. It embroils all of us in the same dilemma, and we're all implicated. You know, in, in a sense, the movie is about the blindness of white privilege, and it is about complicity as the engine that perpetuates racism and injustice. And these events that are seemingly tiny events that take place in our lives, which actually are monumental events and can have uh, catastrophic consequences on other people. It's very easy for us to put ourselves on the moral high ground and call other people fools and idiots and, and not agree with them. If you'd said to my father in 1980, Dad, you are the beneficiary of privilege, he would have thought me insane. He would have actually probably gotten angry you know what I've had to do in my life and what I've had to work for? And he would have been right. And yet, he was the beneficiary of privilege. And the only way, sometimes, that we can understand the complexities and the layers in which these things exist is, frankly, through art. And so we need to experience it that way. If you just call someone up and you say, hey, you, you are the beneficiary of privilege, and they, you know, they, they're trying to make it on 41000 bucks a year, you sound like a jerk. Life is hard, but if you contextualize it and you give it life through somebody else's soul, then it can maybe make some more sense to them. James Gray is the director. Jeremy Strong, one of the stars of the film Armageddon Time. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from Culligan Water since 1936, a local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. While Election Day has passed, we're still making sense of what happened. Keep it here as NPR and WBUR follow the remaining races and key issues. Keep listening to 90.9 WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander, performing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony at Symphony Hall, November 20th, bostonphil.org. Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Farmers to You. You can feed your family organic produce, pasture-raised meats, dairy, and more from Vermont all year round. Farmers2u.com slash WBUR. On the next Radio Lab, we step inside the theater of the mind. A conversation with David Byrne. Yes, the David Byrne. What are, are we seeing things different? About how our minds... Are we tasting things different? Make up our minds. What else that we don't even know about? The theater of David Byrne's mind. That's on the next Radio Lab. Today at 3 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the long count continues to determine who will hold majorities in the House and Senate. And later, Ukraine retakes Kherson. Iranian rap music rises in protest. Maya Lin's career captured on the 40th anniversary of her Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. And Billy Collins, the celebrated poet with a new book of poems short enough to fit into our show billboards, like... There's a new movie out titled Children. I don't know what it's about, but I like the voice on the radio when it says, Children, now playing everywhere. Play on! First our newscast at Saturday, November 12, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden and other top American officials are in Cambodia this weekend for a summit with Asia-Pacific leaders. Biden is then to head to Indonesia, where he is expected to meet with China's leader, Xi Jinping, on Monday. He's expected to warn Xi to reign in North Korea, a Chinese ally. NPR's Emily Fang has more. paint an upbeat picture. The statement just issued claims that its forces have killed hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers in recent operations and destroyed much of their equipment. But over in the real regional capital, Kherson City, residents continue to celebrate their liberation from Russian rule. The U.S. envoy John Kerry has confirmed that a small number of countries at the U.N. climate summit in Egypt have proposed dropping the target of keeping the rise in global temperatures below 1.5 Celsius. Mr. Kerry told reporters there could be no going back. Dozens of Kenyan soldiers have arrived in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo as part of a regional force to counter the threat from rebel groups. Will Ross has more. Eight governors at a time. That record was set back in 2004. 
but it will fall in January, according to the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Eleven women won open offices or secured re-election from Oregon to Michigan. And in Arizona's yet-to-be-decided race for governor, both the Republican and Democratic candidates are women. In other significant races, Massachusetts and Oregon elected the nation's first out lesbians as their state top executives. And Maryland elected its first black governor, Wes Moore, who became just the third black American to win election to a state's highest office. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. The Ukrainian government says the recapture of the key city of Kherson from Russia has been a huge boost to national morale. The foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, says the Ukrainian army will prevail. This is yet another battle that we have won. I would like to remind you that since the beginning of the war, we won the battle for Kyiv. We forced Russia to retreat from the northeast of Ukraine. We won the battle for Kharkiv region. We won the battle for Kherson. So we are winning battles on the ground, but the war continues. Russia's defense minister says Moscow withdrew more than 30,000 soldiers to across the Dnipro River. Ukrainian officials say they're taking up positions on the river's eastern bank. The Russians knocked out power in Kherson before completing their withdrawal yesterday. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Veterans at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home received more than a 1,000 letters of appreciation from students on Veterans Day yesterday. Alden Bourne reports. State Senator John Velas of Westfield organized the initiative, which began during the pandemic when visits to the home were limited. Never did we imagine that the response was going to be as overwhelming as it's been. This year, students in grades K-12 through in East Hampton, Agawam, West Springfield, and other communities sent in letters, cards, and drawings. Vila says the veterans at the home really appreciate the effort. We've heard from the staff that they kind of compare letters. They talk about where the students are from, so it gets them to laugh, it gets them to smile, just brightens up their day. Vila says letters written by area students will also be included in care packages being sent to those serving in the military overseas. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. A Marine Corps veteran in Massachusetts has been sentenced to a year in prison for stealing nearly $400,000 in Veterans Affairs and Social Security disability benefits. Federal prosecutors say from at least 2012 to 2019, Patrick Quinn illegally collected the funds meant for people who are unable to work. During that time, however, they say Quinn owned and operated a successful insurance company in Arlington. City Hall Plaza is one of the less admired public spaces in Boston, and it is getting a fresh start. It reopens with a celebration on Friday following extensive renovations. City officials say the plaza is now universally accessible with new walkways replacing steps. Other changes include new play areas for children, spaces for public art, and increased environmental sustainability. It's 69 degrees in Boston, some showers around this morning, becoming mostly sunny highs today in the mid-70s. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Paramount Network, Yellowstone, returns with its season five premiere, showcasing that power has a price. Starring Kevin Costner, tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern on Paramount Network.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. We begin this hour with more information about the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. In Arizona, the Democrat, Senator Mark Kelly, has won a close race against Republican Blake Masters, according to the Associated Press. NPR's Amanda Bustillo joins us now from Phoenix. Amanda, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And how close was this race? Well, there are still outstanding votes right now, but Mark Kelly is up by a little more than five percentage points, more than 120,000 votes. He took a lead in the counting earlier this week, and Masters simply never made up the difference. Kelly was able to pull through enough votes to keep the seat, which is a major win for Democrats. And his strategy was to lean away from Biden and into moderate and independent voters. He even held a Republicans for Kelly event with former Senator John McCain staffers and his son, Jack McCain. The former NASA astronaut was first elected into the Senate in 2020 during a special election following the death of the late McCain. So this will be his first full six-year term. GOP candidate Blake Masters did receive the Trump endorsement, but Kelly's win is so far showing that he may have gained greater margins than last time and won over more voters. In 2020, Kelly won by 2.4% and 78,000 votes. And as I said, as of Friday night, he's ahead by 5% and more than 120,000 votes. Of course, final tallies are still to come. Amanda, what what took so long to count? Well, vote tabulation in Arizona is a long game. Each county has their own method, and in Maricopa County, early ballots are what takes the longest to tabulate, and when they tabulate them, they do it on a first-in, first-out basis for all the ballots. A record number of voters, in fact, 290,000 voted on Election Day by taking the ballot that was mailed to them and dropping it into a box on Election Day as opposed to mailing it in sooner. That's 290,000 ballots to verify and count after Election Day, which was also a record. The morning after Election Day, there were 500,000 ballots left in Maricopa County alone, and it really could have swung the election either way. Did Republican voters save their vote until Election Day, or did Democrats vote early enough to make the difference? The first set of those ballots delivered Kelly the win, so it's a good sign for Democrats for now in some of those other close races in the state. Tell us about other races for the Senate, if you could, and, and control of the House. Sure. With Kelly's win, there are 47 Democratic senators in the upcoming Congress, as well as two independents who caucus with the Democrats. We are still awaiting results from Nevada and Georgia. Nevada Senate race will be decided in the coming days, while Georgia's heads to a runoff on December 6th. It's a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure situation for the Democrats. If Senator Catherine Cortez Masto wins in Nevada, Democrats have the majority, and Georgia is just a bonus. If Senator Cortez Masto loses, then Democrats must win Georgia's runoff to maintain control of the Senate. As for the House, there's still no clear winner, though things continue to look good for Republicans to take the majority. How slim that majority might be is the thing we're not sure yet. Here in Arizona, there are still two outstanding House races, which are very close. And that's true of races all over, especially in California. So it's more hurry up and wait before we know exactly who might hold the gavel in the House at the start of the 118th Congress in January. NPR's Jimena Bustillo in Phoenix. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're going to turn now to Representative Abigail Spanberger. The Virginia Democrat and former CIA officer won re-election in a race that was considered a toss-up. 
She defeated Yesli Vega, an anti-abortion rights candidate with a law enforcement background and the support of former President Trump. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. This was a tough and closely watched campaign for everybody, I suppose. What were the issues, as you heard it from your constituents, that seemed most important? So it really varied person to person. One of the things I would characterize, though, is that across the board, there was just a level of uneasiness or a level of concern that existed. So for some people, the uneasiness was because of gas prices or the cost of prescription drugs or the cost of you know, food at the grocery store. For some people, it was the concerns about a loss of freedoms with the Dobbs decision and you know, concern about what might come next. Let me ask you about something President Biden said this week. He was asked at a press conference about voter frustration, as expressed in exit polls and other information, what he intended to do differently over the next two years. Let's listen to his answer. Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Do you agree with that approach? Well, I think there's always area for improvement in ensuring that people know what it is that we're working on, what it is that we've delivered. We can always do better at connecting those dots, taking a moment to say, let me connect the dots between these sets of concerns that this community, this state, you know, these individuals have with the work that we've actually been doing. Such a bitter campaign in so many districts, including, I don't have to tell you, your own. Can you work with the people in the other party on the Republican side after such a campaign? You know, I I can. Um, I have had three really tough campaigns. And at the end of the day, the work that I do is about serving the people that I represent, you know, whether they voted for me or not. Hyper-partisanship and division and anger is bad for the country. And I have always, since I got to Congress, been focused on trying to bridge some of these divides. Does that put you at least somewhat at odds with people who uh, are progressives in your party? Well, I think that the idea that, you know, the bigger the coalition, the better. And so if I believe in these policies, I should take the time to try and not always successfully, but try and pitch these ideas to people across the political spectrum and at least, you know, have the conversation of this is what I'm advocating for. But to point out the obvious, you have been outspoken in saying that you were concerned that some progressive Democrats were advocating policies that you didn't think were going to help the party, particularly when it comes to defunding local police and questions like that. Well, I think the important piece there is that, you know, with the exception of a couple people, no one was actually advocating for taking funding away from police. And so my point is, if someone is going to use this, you know, hashtag on Twitter or hold up a poster at an event and then say on Capitol Hill, well, what I really mean by that is, then what are you doing? You're mixing up a message, confusing people. You know, the word defund has an actual literal definition, and people are believing you when you say that. And if you don't mean it, don't say it. Do you hope President Biden runs for election? You know, I think that we need to continue to make the case of the things that we are doing on behalf of the American people. And I think that we need to continue to advocate for strong voices in support of and defense of our democracy, our institutions. So we need to continue as legislators just kind of focusing on what matters to people. And so, you know, whether it's the current president or, you know, any future Democratic leaders, you know, that's what I'm focused on. 
It's irresistible to point out you answered our question without once mentioning President Biden by name. Oh. <laughs> uh, that was, uh, suppose, evidently not intentional, but um, yeah, I, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm focused on the people that I represent, and I brought President Biden to our district, and I had the opportunity to put constituents who were struggling with the price of their prescription drugs in front of the president of the United States. And, you know, that was last year. And then fast forward, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. And many of those same constituents now will see their lives changed. And so I'm proud of the work that I've done with President Biden. I'm proud of the fact that former President Trump signed bills into law of mine. And that's, I think, really what the role of an elected representative should be, is focusing on solving problems, not necessarily the sort of uh, palace intrigue of who's doing what when, but really just getting things done for the American people. Representative Abigail Spanberger, Democrat of Virginia, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Some tweets on Twitter can cause a lot of stress these days on that social media platform, but a study from King's College in London says real verified tweet, tweet, tweets from real birds might be beneficial. Researchers had participants download an app that would occasionally ask them how they're feeling and questions about their immediate environment, including were they near trees or water, or could they see or hear a bird? Lead author Ryan Hamoud says their data showed that having a bird nearby might lift moods. I wouldn't say that we went into this with an interest in birds. We're all sort of mental health researchers. So we went into this trying to discover why the incidence of mental illness is much higher in cities when compared to rural areas. The benefit was statistically significant and could last up to eight hours. So I wouldn't go as far as saying that everyday encounters with birds would cure depression. I would say that everyday encounters with birds is beneficial to people with depression. Why may birdsong lift our moods? Like the music of B.J. Lederman, who writes her theme music. Ryan Hamoud says... There are several sort of theories about why nature in general can benefit mental health, whether that's by improving concentration, by decreasing mental fatigue. It can reduce stress and lower blood pressure and stress-induced hormones but specifically to do with birds, that would require some further research and some further exploration. Tweet on. The birds, I mean. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll hear from the former U.S. Poet Laureate, Billy Collins. WBUR supporters include the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org. Volante Farms in Needham, with local produce and groceries, now picking homegrown broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, and more. 
volantefarms.com slash nowpicking. And the British International School of Boston, thinking beyond traditional education, collaborating with MIT and Juilliard, open house November 20th. Register at bisboston.org. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Control of the Senate is focusing this weekend on two states after the contest in Arizona was called for Democratic Senator Mark Kelly last night. Republicans need to win the remaining contests in Nevada and Georgia to claim control. Democrats now need to win just one of them. The closely watched race for Arizona Secretary of State has been decided. Democrat Adrian Fontes won the job over a Republican rival who attended the January 6th rally and who has said he would not have certified Joe Biden's 2020 victory in the state. And former President Trump is fighting a subpoena for documents and testimony from the House January 6th committee. His lawyers filed a lawsuit last night arguing that he has immunity as a former president. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from ProQuest, whose website Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S. curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com go slash black freedom. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. In the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson, there is joy in the streets. Ukrainians celebrated late into the night after Russian troops withdrew from the city. Russia had occupied Kherson since the earliest days of the war. NPR's Greg Myrie is in Ukraine and joins us from Kiev. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. Uh, Russian forces occupied Kherson for more than eight months, first of all. What's the city look like now that the Russians are gone? Well, this was the one city Russia captured without a fight, so it wasn't damaged like we've seen in other Ukrainian cities. But Kherson was cut off. It was really hard to know what was happening there. And in the final days, we're hearing accounts that maybe just 10, 20 percent of the population was left. Food, water, electricity were all scarce. And residents say the Russian troops were growing even more aggressive and detaining people for some very rough interrogations. So there was just this explosion of joy in the main square when the Russians pulled out. And a really defining image is residents giving watermelons to Ukrainian troops as they entered the city. The watermelon is the symbol of the Kherson region, which is a very rich farming area. Russian troops retreated over a river, so how far away are they, and is there still a danger of fighting? Well, uh, there certainly could be. Uh, the Ukrainian military is, is urging caution. It says these 30,000 Russian troops that left Kherson and the west bank of the Dnipro River are just a few miles away on the east bank uh, and setting up defensive positions there. 
Now, Russia also launched missile strikes at a number of places in southern Ukraine overnight. So the fighting isn't over, but the river is a natural barrier that will be difficult for either side to cross. And a step back for a moment, Greg. How did Ukraine's military force Russian troops out of Kherson without any kind of battle? Yeah, the Ukrainians began this very methodical offensive in the south in the direction of Kherson back in September. There was lots of fighting in outlying villages, and the Ukrainians were making sort of relatively slow advances, capturing some of these villages. But they were still dozens of miles away from Kherson, and it wasn't clear if they were going to get there before the winter set in. Clearly, a big factor was the U.S. weapons the Ukrainians now have, these long-range artillery guns known as HIMARS, and, and they allowed Ukraine to hit the Russian troops from a long distance. Ukraine damaged bridges that Russia was using to resupply its troops in Kherson, and so the Russians knew they were in danger of being cut off, so they retreated rather than risk being trapped. This, of course, is a huge defeat for Russia, the military, and Vladimir Putin's leadership. Can you tell how Russia's trying to spin this? Yeah, Russia's defense ministry is digging very deep into its bag of euphemisms. It's called this a redeployment, a repositioning, a maneuver. Now, Vladimir Putin has gone absolutely silent. When his spokesman was asked about Kherson, he said this was a military decision and he had nothing to say. Now, of course, there's no way this could have happened without Putin's approval, and it's the latest in a string of humiliating setbacks. This is really Russia's third major retreat this year, first from the outskirts of Kyiv, the capital and the largest city, then from the areas around Kharkiv, the second largest city, and now Kherson, a major city in the south. And Pierce, Greg Myrie in Kyiv. Thanks so much, Greg. My pleasure, Scott. Rap music and rappers have been a vocal presence in the deadly protest taking place in Iran. The unrest, of course, began after a young woman named Gina Amini, also known as Masa, died while in custody of that country's morality police, the same morality police as the mandate to crack down on other behavior that's deemed objectionable by the Islamic Republic, including dancing, most public displays of affection, and some forms of music. But that has not stopped rappers from making politically charged music, and that's made them a target for arrest and even execution. We're joined now by Nohid Siamdust, Assistant Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at University of Texas, Austin, and author of Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. We heard a bit from Hitchkos, uh, or no one at the top there, and he's often, I gather, referred to as the father of Iranian rap. And and he has left Iran. It was unsafe for him to remain there a number of years ago. But he continues to release songs like this, doesn't he? That's right. And he left Iran after the Green Uprising because he published back then a track called A Good Day Will Come, which really spoke for the protests. And, you know, listening to A Good Day Will Come, which back then was sort of the rap anthem for the protests, and comparing that to the kind of tracks that we hear today really tells you about the differences between these two protest movements. He's been among those rappers trying to draw attention to the arrests of, of other rap artists, including Tumaj. He was, uh, I gather, arrested at his home in late October and, and posted a video essentially asking what it would take for people to evince moral outrage 
if the killing of teenage girls in the streets wasn't enough. یه بچه 16 ساله رو کشتن دیروز. یه دختر 17 ساله رو دو روز پیش کشتن. چه اتفاقی باید بیفته که تکون بخوری؟ چه اتفاقی باید بیفته که بهت بر بخوره؟ Strong words. The authorities certainly heard it, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. He's saying, you know, a 16-year-old was killed, a 17-year-old was killed. Many of those were killed. What's it, what's it going to take for you to join the protest? Now's the time. Come join the protest. It's time to bring down this regime. And he had been very outspoken for, for already over a year. About a year ago, he published a track where, you know, he accused everybody who in any way supported the Islamic Republic, whether from inside the country or outside of the country, as collaborating with this repressive regime and telling them that they needed to find rat holes because soon enough, their day was going to be over. If we could, let's let's listen to a bit of his performance. اگه خودتو به خواب زدی وقتی که خونه رو میریختن گرفتار کسبتی وقتی جون جوونا رو میگیرن اگه وسط بازی وسط بودی و گفتی سیاست چی هست بدون رأی سفید نداریم بی طرف نداره این جنگ I don't even speak the language and I can tell those are blunt and unflinching words. Mhm, is being held up as a as a hero and a champion of this movement. Let me uh, ask you about another rap artist who's been arrested, uh, Saman Yassin. Kurdish rapper and singer uh, who has been outspoken uh, about the plight of, of the Kurdish ethnic minority in Iran. Let, let's listen to a bit of a, his track called Haji. <laughs> Now he, I gather, is 27 and has been sentenced to death he has been sentenced for fighting the regime, and fighting the regime usually carries the death sentence. Yeah. And yes, he's been a very strong rapper from Kerman Shah, rapping in Kurdish in the in the piece that you just broadcast. He says, our life is hell on earth. And he's really been very critical of the economic and social and cultural, you know, conditions in Iran, and especially also for the Kurdish minority. Let me ask you about the uh, the important role of women, because, of course, this is a, a protest largely begun by women. And there are female rappers, in, including uh, Salome, MC, and Justina. And they're, they're out of the country, but I gather they've they found a way to collaborate with uh, with those inside. And, and here's a, a track that I, I guess the translation, it's by Justina and Tumaj. It uh, translates to uh, whip. What are they saying, Professor? She is really uh, using so many cultural references. So at the beginning of the revolution, you know, women had been equally part of the 1979 revolution to bring down one of the most powerful regimes in the world of Muhammad Reza Pahlavi. And yet once the revolution happened and Ayatollah Khomeini took over, he said women had to cover up. At the time, there was a term that was used that was yaru sari, yatu sari. Either you cover your head or you're going to be hit on the head. So she's using that reference to say, I don't want Rusari, I don't want the hijab, and I don't want Tusari, I don't want to be hit on the head either. My hair is going to be become the whip that's going to hit you mm. on the head. So it's quite combative and um, very meaningful for an Iranian woman listening. These rap artists are enormously brave, aren't they? Absolutely. And rap music as such, sort of non-conformative, non-alternative, non-state-sanctioned, 
rap has never received a permit for an actual record in Iran. So this is really the language of protest, you know, Persian language and Persian culture. One of its most illustrious forms is Persian poetry. So the rap format is very, very native and very inimical to, to Persian culture. And they're using that format to the best of its potential. Nahid Siamdust is uh, author of the soundtrack of the revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for sports. Kyrie Irving might soon be back on court despite an anti-Semitic post and lawsuit against the man trying to sell Washington, D.C.'s football team. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, my friend. The uh, The NBA Players Association, says Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, who was suspended earlier this month for sharing a link to an anti-Semitic film, could be back playing, quote, very soon. Howard. In this era of athlete activism, uh, when the league and media encourage players to speak their minds on social issues, is it inevitable that not all of their opinions are going to be informed, enlightened, or just? No, that's right. And I talked to one NBA executive this week who said to me that the league is a soap opera that happens to play basketball. <laughs> so <laughs> it has gotten to that point. And it's absolutely right, Scott. This is the, the thing where we, we will look at this time period, and it has been a remarkable decade. We've talked about this periodically um, on, on this show. And now that the commentaries that we're receiving from some of these players aren't exactly what were considered to be either mainstream or inspirational and there's been a lot of misinformation disinformation and just downright ahistorical stuff that is not necessarily a good guy narrative it's not necessarily part of the solution we saw this with aaron Rodgers, and we saw this with kyrie irving and we saw this with a lot of players during the uh, the pandemic when it came to vaccines and now you're seeing a lot of this uh, history uh, and ahistorical. You know, Kyrie Irving is 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 really um, running into what's the best way to say it: um, the conspiracy theories and a lot of the conversations that are very very dangerous. And and the league is now faced with this: you want players to speak, and now they're speaking. Yeah. And so, what do you do with this? And the response has been to come down pretty hard and and to put have we lost Howard Bryant? His connection uh, is we're going to try and see if we can bring back Howard Bryant. Uh, perhaps not. Uh, we certainly did want to ask him about the uh, lawsuit this week filed. Uh, well, we're going to play. We're going to play some music for you <laughs> until we can get Howard Bryant back. Or uh, uh, I'm I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to ask him about the uh, uh, lawsuit filed by the Washington D.C. Attorney General against the uh, Dan Snyder, owner of the Washington Commanders, Howard. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media. So, what about this lawsuit against Dan Sanders, uh, D Daniel Snyder? 
And then there's Daniel Snyder of Scott. I'm sorry, I lost you. Yes. Um, and Daniel Snyder, this is the other thing. Sports has been a boys club for so long. And you're going to have a new era when you're having you, – you cannot act like this. This is the reason why they've called it a boys club. And the, the response is going to be very, very different than it's been for the last hundred years. And so now you see the pressure to – force Daniel Snyder to sell his team. You're seeing the district attorney now coming forward saying, look, we're going to investigate you. And, and, and it's not just Washington. You saw it with Robert Sarver in, in Phoenix with the NBA, with the Suns. He's selling his team. We saw it with Donald Sterling. You see it okay. with Amy Adoka and the Boston Celtics. Howard Bryant, thanks so much. And uh, no, you, you are listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Many Americans have been preoccupied with vote tallies this week, as many races have been just too close to call. Bob Mondello told us in 2020 he had a trick to distract himself from election-related counting. He concentrated on counting in movies. Hans Gruber didn't have to raise his voice to be scary and diehard. All he had to do was count. I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. He was a man of his word. Movie villains often are. So our movie heroes say Deadpool calculating his odds as he faces a whole lot of bad guys. I only have 12 bullets, so you're going to have to share. Let's count them down. This counting bullets thing comes up more often than you might expect, in whodunits especially, though as Clue established, characters can overthink. There was one shot at Mr. Body in the study, two for the chandelier, two at the lounge door, and one for the singing telegram. That's not six. One plus two plus two plus one. Uh-uh. There was only one shot that got the chandelier. That's one plus two plus one plus one. Even if you were right, that would be one plus one plus two plus one, not one plus two plus one plus one. Okay, fine. One plus two plus one. Shut up! When people are counting in movies, they're either adding things up or building suspense. Either way, there probably isn't a lot going on on screen. But then there doesn't have to be if there's, say, a bomb with a digital clock ticking down to zero, or in the case of the Russian sub in The Hunt for Red October, a torpedo coming that gets counted down and then up to, well, hard to say to what exactly, but Sean Connery gets it right. Torpedo impact now 15 seconds. Sound collision. Sound collision. People count in movies for all kinds of less consequential reasons. To cue the band in musicals like Chicago. Five, six, seven, eight. To make sure everyone's lined up for a field trip in Home Alone. To launch rockets in lots of movies. Films count cards in Vegas, seconds in prize fights, and sometimes filmmakers find a plot-driven reason to count. In Rain Man, for instance, to give Tom Cruise a peek at the special talents of his autistic brother, played by Dustin Hoffman. A waitress has dropped a box of toothpicks, and Hoffman, barely glancing at the floor, sees a pattern. 82, 82, 82. 82 what, Toothpicks. It's a lot more than 82 toothpicks, right? 246 total. Change. Cruise and the waitress look at the box cover. How many toothpicks are you? 250. Pretty close. Come on, let's go, Ray. 246. There's four left in the box. Hoffman took home an Oscar for that role. And J.K. Simmons got one years later, playing a tyrannical music teacher in Whiplash, where the most memorable scene was about counting beats mixed with slaps. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I, I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. No. 
Was I rushing or was I dragging? Oh, no. Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference! Okay, I've gone down a dark hole looking for distraction. Rest assured, there's plenty of comic counting. From Monty Python's Holy Grail hand grenade sequence... First shalt thou take out the holy pin. Then shalt thou count to three. Four shalt thou not count. Neither count thou two. To Roger Rabbit's haunting love poem that did not win over Jessica Rabbit. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. There is no accounting for taste. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. An open-air holiday market has returned to Boston. The Snowport opened yesterday in the Seaport, and it will remain open through December. It features local businesses. More than 120 small businesses are taking part in this year's market. That's twice as many as last year. This coming week, you could find out more about a plan to replace the Cape Cod Bridges. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation staff members working on a project to replace the Bourne and Sagamore Bridges over the Cape Cod Canal host a virtual public meeting Tuesday evening. They will present updates on the effort, which could carry a price tag of nearly $4 billion. It is 70 degrees in Boston, some showers around this morning, a breezy Saturday, becoming mostly sunny, and highs in the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, with over 70 part-time graduate programs in high-growth areas, such as analytics, global marketing management, health informatics, financial management, and software development. Graduate admissions info session, Tuesday, November 15th. Sign up at bu.edu slash met slash events. And JBS Home Inspections, with condo common area consultations, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. On this week's On the Media, libraries, what they're after, and who's after them. It's not about the book. It is about wanting the library itself to disappear. The dream of accessing the knowledge of the whole world and the risk of losing it all on the next On the Media from WNYC. Today at 1 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older nprwineclub.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. This weekend marks the 40th anniversary of the dedication of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., work that began designer Maya Lin's career. She is also the subject of an exhibition currently underway at the National Portrait Gallery. NPR's Chloe Veltman explores how the show reflects the life one of the world's greatest living artist-architects. Maya Lin doesn't much like being under the spotlight. 
I've always sort of felt my works are public, but I'm not. Her works include the Civil Rights Memorial in Alabama, the Langston Hughes Library in Tennessee, and What is Missing, the massive ongoing environmental activism project she launched in 2009. Lynn is 63 now, but her desire to keep her private life to herself dates back at least to her early 20s. She was still an undergraduate at Yale in 1981 when her sleek, understated design in black granite for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial beat out more than 1,400 other submissions and sparked a pitiless backlash. Footage from a U.S. Fine Arts Commission meeting in 1981 shows Vietnam vet Tom Carhart sounding off from the podium. One needs no artistic education to see this memorial design for what it is, a black scar. When the camera pans to close-ups of Lin, you can see the then 21-year-old daughter of Chinese immigrants trying to maintain a brave face. To this day, the artist says she doesn't like talking about that period of her life. Part of the controversy was my age, my race, my gender. It's like, it was really unpleasant. So it took quite a bit of persuading to get the artist to agree to this first ever exhibition focusing on her life. Curator Dorothy Moss made the case. And I said, this is the Smithsonian. We have a lot of school groups who come through, and the story of your persistence and resilience is one that would inspire young people. And so she agreed. <laughs> the exhibition traces Lynn's life from her idyllic Ohio childhood through her work on the many buildings and public art projects she's designed all over the world to accolades like earning the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016. It also offers visitors a glimpse into that private life. Curator Dorothy Moss points out Lynn's busy sketchbooks. I love showing these pages because you see how energized her line is and how fast her writing is. There's the grey-brimmed wool hat Lynn wore when she was going through the Vietnam Veterans Memorial mess. And the reason why she liked to wear it around was to hide her eyes from the press. Then there's the glass case with a pair of tiny frolicking deer crafted by the artist out of silver. They reflect her lifelong love of the natural world. They're so animated. She made these when she was a high school student. On a recent morning, students from a Washington DC high school visiting the National Portrait Gallery's One Life Myelin show jot down memories of favorite places now lost to environmental destruction. They attach them to a large vinyl map on the wall, which is part of what is missing, Lynn's multifaceted climate change project. In New Hampshire, there's a lake called Forest Lake, and currently a major landfill company is trying to build a landfill right next to it. In my grandfather's town in Spain, there was a fire this summer that led to a lot of the wildlife and farms to be lost. And when I visited the town, it was very sad to see how it had differed from my memories. Myelin says the best way to inspire people to action is through this kind of empathy. We hear, we read, we understand it's a little abstract. How do we make it personal? Because I think you have to, in the end, communicate not just the facts, but you have to get people to feel. Lynn says she likes what the National Portrait Gallery has done with this biographical show, though she's still a bit squeamish about being the centre of attention. I was happy with the show. I mean, I was embarrassed. I mean, yeah. I was a little, like, mortified by it. Maya Lin might never get truly used to living in the public eye, but her works continue to grab the public's attention, and she hopes the public's activism too. Chloe Veltman, NPR News.
What does it mean to talk about representation in films, as in which demographic groups are shown on screen, which aren't, and how they're depicted? Pop culture happy hours, Aisha Harris is looking back at representation in three movie classics, including, oh, I love this film, The Godfather. She'll talk about her project later today on All Things Considered. Listen live at this station's website or npr.org. Billy Collins believes in the beauty of short poems. He says they show how poetry can squeeze a lot of meaning into tight spaces. His new collection of short poems is called Musical Tables, and uh, let's ask him to uh, read one called Dog. When she runs in her sleep, eyelids twitching, legs churning sideways on the floor, I wonder if she's chasing a squirrel or being chased by an angry farmer waving a rake. Billy Collins, the former poet lord of the United States, joins us now. Thank you so much for being back with us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. What's your special regard for short poems? I started being entranced by them probably when I discovered haiku when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. I like the sense that it's a more sudden engagement. I've always preferred poetry as what I would write over the novel because of its quickness. Mm. I mean, the novelist is with you for weeks, right? I mean, there, mm -hmm. there he or she is on the nightstand day after day until you finish. The poet is more like someone, a door opens, the poet's standing there, he or she says something profound and musical about life and death, and then the door closes. It's sort of like, who was that masked man? And that sudden appearance is uh, made even more sudden if you reduce a poem to three or four lines. Mm. Do some poets worry that they have to go long to be considered important? I mean, I don't start with a, a concept in writing these poems mm -hmm. and then compact them into a shorter space. They seem to arrive fully formed, and they're so short that there's no beginning, middle, or an end. And many of the common pleasures that we associate with poetry are absent here. There's no landscape, for example, no personal reflection or a delivery of misery. There's not even any time to develop an idea. So it's more of a, just a verbal maneuver mm -hmm. uh, that takes place. I'm going to read an especially short one. In fact, I think the title might be longer than the poem. It's called Reflections on an Amish Childhood. I was a little square in a round hat. Very well read. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just enough non-drama. Oh, I love that poem. I was a little square in a round hat. And I find that tells a story. Well, it's very touching in a way. In the, that the boy is uh, speaking, yeah. but it's just basic geometry. <laughs> Could I get you to read a poem, Corridor? And I found it very affecting. It plucks your heart. Corridor. I've grown old. Now my own name rings a bell. Wow. That's a whole life in there for some or people. Or the end of one, it? yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think a corridor comes from, I mean, I, I want this to kind of corridor, I wanted to place it in a, a man in a hallway, yeah. between rooms, or even in a nursing home. Not only is it a very moving poem, I guess it's 
just as long as it needs to be. It's three lines long. Um, it has something in common with a number of these poems in that it takes a cliche, like that name rings a bell, uh, a vague remembrance, mm -hmm. and it tries to give it uh, a fresh meaning by turning it rather on the speaker so that your own name is the one that's ringing a bell. You can barely remember it. Wow. I assume you have met and are even friendly with people who've been poet laureates of, say, the UK or France or Ireland. What's it like to be a poet laureate of the United States? Well, I can sum that up. There was one evening in London when I was having dinner with the current UK poet laureate, Andrew Motion. Of course, the British Poet Laureate writes what are called occasional poems, poems that are uh, commemorating a certain event, a coronation, for example. So at the end of the dinner, I said to him, I think the difference is basically this. The British Poet Laureate writes occasional poems, and the American Poet Laureate writes occasionally. <laughs> that that is that's probably the main that's the main difference yeah uh i i get to read one again if that's all right as a as a dog owner sure and i'm struck by the uh i'm not sure metaphor is the word the metaphor you make of poems or dogs do morning walk the dog stops often to sniff the poems of others before reciting her own. <laughs> well, that shows that the dog knows that you need to be influenced by other poets before you recite your own. Well, our, our poodle writes haiku, but of course, uh, poodles, right. are, well, poodles are so... They're, they're prone to that. Until, yes, I, I know, exactly. May I ask, do your friends and family expect you to write a poem for them? on holidays or birthdays? No, I've, I've never, they know better. <laughs> they know better and you don't know me very well, but if you knew me just a little better, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think to ask me. So I don't, I don't really get that. So not on demand? I've written two poems on demand, one for the 300th anniversary of the Trinity School in New York mm -hmm. and the other on the first anniversary of 9-11. I wrote a poem right. and Earth, the yes. for uh, Congress. Yesterday I lay awake in the palm of the night, a soft rain stole in, unhelped by any breeze. And when I saw the silver glaze on the windows, I started with A, with Ackerman, as it happened, then Baxter and Calabro, Davis and Eberling, names falling into place as droplets fell through the dark. Names printed on the ceiling of the night, names slipping around a watery bend 26 willows on the banks of a stream. What kind of challenge is it to make yourself write a poem? I don't want to say to order, but as you did for the anniversary of 9-11, write a poem to, yes, to hit a certain date, a certain appearance in a certain circumstance. Well, one of the difficulties of, of that kind of a poem that has a definite subject, it really can't move off in some whimsical direction. It has to stick to the topic. Now, that's something you do in an essay at school. You stick to the topic. In mm -hmm. poetry, one of the, uh, I mean, what I enjoy, one of the things I enjoy about poetry is that it doesn't care about the topic. It wants to lose the topic. So it was an impossible thing for me to write until I discovered I could do it 
by writing a, in a genre. So I wrote an elegy, mm-hmm. a poem for the dead. That way I could avoid all the other implications of that terrible event. Also, I could use the alphabet as a way to get through the poem, moving from letter to letter, almost as kind of handholds that would keep me going through the poem. So those were two uh, self-imposed restrictions. And those, paradoxically, those two uh, confinements allowed me to write the poem. Alphabet of names in a green field, names in the small tracks of birds, names lifted from a hat or balanced on the tip of the tongue, names wheeled in to the dim warehouse of memory, so many names, there is barely room on the walls of the heart. How often does it happen that you begin a poem to say one thing, but writing it, it says something else? Well, that's uh, what we're looking for. That's what I'm looking for. I'm always looking to uh, to move the poem or let the poem expand or contract or turn in some unexpected direction. That's really a very basic way to keep my own interest in the poem. If it keeps going in the same direction, there's really no thrill or surprise for the writer or the reader. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of kind of keeping, figuratively keeping a light touch on the pencil so that you allow it to move in other directions. You know what poem really got me? The exception. The exception. Whoever said there's a poem lurking in the darkness of every pencil was not thinking of this one. (laughs) Was that a bad day, a bad afternoon, or? It's just, I don't know. As I said, these things just arrive. I think the shortest one, the title is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Trouble was not his middle name. Yes. Well, they're delightful. Um, Thank you. One last question. Do we read poems to children and get them to read and even remember and recite poems to interest them in literature and then somehow lose that thread? Well, I think it comes and goes. I think all children are natural-born artists Mm -hmm. in the sense that if you give a child some paper and some crayons and tell them not to write on the walls, they'll start drawing. You don't have to tell them about the prism and the color scheme and how to do things. Same with putting on some music. They'll often start dancing, especially to the Beatles. I find that interesting that children can't resist dancing to the Beatles. But at some point, something occurs called adolescence. And that's when self-consciousness comes in. And those natural creative abilities seem to wither, at least temporarily. And I think dancers, painters, trumpet players are people for whom the creative interest has not been killed off by adolescence and who recover those childhood abilities and the childhood joy of creating something new. Billy Collins, uh, former poet laureate of the United States and perpetual adolescent, his new collection, Musical Tables. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, sir. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. 
connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent. Runs now through December 4th, theumbrellastage.org. Landry and Arkari, fall event ends today with new antique hand-knotted rugs. Boston, Salem, and Framingham, LandryAndArkari.com. And Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.